0: Let God, be merciful to us as we hear your word, that we may listen to your voice, that we may respond with faith and the will to follow you all of our days. Amen. I recall hearing a lecture from an erudite biblical studies professor some years ago who was from... Yale Divinity School. Um, now, as is often in the case in these lectures, you spend most of your time missing large swaths of what the speaker says, because you're trying to figure out what he said a couple of minutes ago. You sort of get stuck. I don't love those kinds of talks. Um, and in this case, we all survived the lecture, duly impressed with his scholarship and the breadth of his learning. I mean, he was good. He knew a lot. Uh, Akkadian cuneiform, uh, the epic of Gilgamesh, of course, as all of you know here. What Isaiah said, what he meant, all of that stuff. He was really good. Um, We arrived at the Q&A time, and I typically sat very quietly during those times, but a friend of mine who was in front of me Uh, Asked a question. It was a good question. My ears perked up. uh, Because he said, given everything that the professor had said in that lecture, my friend was curious how does all of that correlate to the Christian doctrine of the person and work of Jesus and the doctrine of the Trinity? Just connect some dots for me, he was asking. Well, I really wanted to hear this answer. And the speaker replied, you know, I might be alone in this, but does anyone else in the room find the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus completely irrelevant and useless? He was not joking. He said, I mean, I don't see any use in it at all. It's time we moved on from it in religious studies and just focus on what we can know for sure. full professor, Yale Divinity School. You can imagine our disappointment to hear him say that. In a stroke, he erased most of the New Testament, certainly the epistles, all of the creedal councils of the early church, the ground and source for Christian living in this life, our hope for the next life, so pretty much everything just in that statement. I'll tell you something that's bothered me for as long as I've been an adult Christian. How can someone study the Bible their entire lives, attend church on a regular basis, or even infrequently? How can they teach the Bible either as a layperson or a professional minister or academic, and yet remain either? an immature Christian, or no Christian at all. How can it be? How is it that someone can be appointed a deacon in a church, quote Bible verses, and yet be the greediest backstabbing jerk you ever met? Of course, not any deacon in our midst. Pete started squirming over there. I'm not talking (laughs) about you. You'd have thought, certainly in the case of our Yale professor friend, you would have thought that all that Bible study would have made a difference, right? Memorize the verses, learn about the biblical authors and the languages and the history and the socio political context, and mash it all together and stick it in the oven and let it bake low and slow, and out pops understanding, maturity. Faith, even. I mean, surely, if we jump through all of those educational hoops, we'll turn out okay, right? We'll understand what we need to about God. We'll understand His ethical requirements. And then He will bless me. Yes, that's it. Wouldn't you think that of all people, The one who studies the Bible the most wins. I can think of at least one person who would strongly object to that mindset. I think you've heard of him. Paul, the apostle. You may have stumbled across Philippians 3 before. Pete preached on it not so long ago here. Paul goes on a, a rant about his own amazing spiritual pedigree. Hebrew of Hebrews, personally studied with the religious Einstein of his day. A Pharisee who knew the law, the Bible, backward and forward. And, crucially, not just, wasn't just that he knew it, he obeyed that law to the letter, he says. And believe it or not, you know anything about the life of Paul, it was his Biblical fidelity that was driving him to bring the power of the state down on these crazy new Jesus followers. Persecution, imprisonment, even capital punishment. Paul, Saul at the time, wanted law and order. In the name of faithfulness to God. And what, pray tell, tell is wrong with law and order? Isn't it remarkable? That someone could have so much Bible knowledge, be skilled in the poetry and philosophy of his day, and at the same time think it's perfectly reasonable to imprison and stone his enemies. Thankfully, we're not like that, but that's the way he was. But as we look at Paul's life, and we listen to his words, maybe it's, maybe it's not so strange that we still have people like that today. They can quote the scripture, sing the hymns by heart, recite Christian cliches as easily as they can recite the alphabet just rolls off the tongue. It all sounds very mature, very wise. And yet, we can't quite shake that nagging feeling that something's missing. Something's not quite right. Have you ever had someone tell that they're sorry. But when you walk away, you're left feeling like, I'm not sure they really are sorry. never ever had that? You know why you feel that way? Because they're not sorry. <laughs> oh, now, they've said the right words. You heard them say it. They plainly said, sorry for all those hurtful things I said about you. But the spirit of the words sounded very different, and it was that spirit that was left ringing in your ears. It's a bit like a three year old telling another three year old that they're sorry, right? Have you ever seen this? Sorry for stealing your toy, sorry for turning all the toddlers in the nursery against you, you know. And they say it with a scowl on their face and their arms crossed sorry, something's missing. Words are there. The spirit is different. Something was certainly missing from Paul. I called it a rant earlier in Philippians 3 because now Paul believes that the entirety of his pious, biblically informed resume should be considered dumb. All that wisdom may have sounded good. Paul says it rang hollow, it was empty, it was nothing. In fact, it was so egregious that it was pulling him away from true wisdom and understanding. Here was an educated preacher who had reached the pinnacle of his profession only to admit that he understood nothing of God. What a strange thing to say. What a strange thing for a preacher and a theologian to say. I mean, surely this is hyperbole, right? Even if you didn't quite connect all the dots between Moses and Jesus, it can't possibly be all dumb manure. I don't know. I mean, he sounds pretty serious about it. Listen again to what he said in the passage that was read, 1 Corinthians 2, just a moment ago. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything, except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. You see, dumb for Paul is all the human wisdom and learning that does not connect us to the cross of Christ. If you got all of this other stuff, and you don't have that, you have nothing. This explains my Yale professor friend. It's possible to spend a lifetime in the Scripture and not quite make it to the person and work of Jesus on the cross. It's possible to live an orderly orderly life where you obey your parents, where you do your homework, where you live like a responsible citizen, where you remain faithful to your spouse. You save for your retirement so you're not a burden on your children or society. You give of your time and money to others. You even attend church. It's possible to do all of that and miss the most crucial ingredient of all, the crucified Lord. How? How does it happen? Exactly the way it happened for Paul, I think. Remarkably, none of what he studied as a Pharisee pointed him to the foolish idea that his only hope was a crucified Messiah. Instead, everything pointed him to a try-harder religion. Follow the law, to the letter, and God will love you. Obey your parents immediately, and God will give you what you need in life. I'm not saying, kids, don't do that. Don't misunderstand me. Do better, and you have the good life. More biblical studies and all your questions and confusion about God will go away. Maturity, faith, understanding, all that you want. Just try harder. Work a little bit more and you'll get there. That's the try harder religion. It's a virus that has infected the church of Jesus. Recently, a friend of mine said to me, you know, he said, when I listen to certain preachers, and he wasn't talking about the sort of preachers who are obscure. These are preachers who have big followings and are good preachers. They are good preachers. He said, when I listen to these preachers, I can't help but think that the bottom line, what's underlying every sermon, is just, you just need to do better. You just need to try hard. And he said, after I listen, I feel heavier and a greater weight than I did when I walked in the room or turned on the podcast. Now, to be fair, they would never say that the gospel, those preachers would never say that the gospel is a try harder and climb your way to God religion. They would never say that. They would strongly deny it. But very practically, this is what often happens. It's interesting. People love that. Do you know how many people have made a mint telling people how to improve their lives? Every time you turn on a television, radio, podcast, look at a book of lists, those are people selling something to you so that you can make your life better. Try it. You know why it sells? Because we want it. We love it. We want a religion where we're told exactly how Christians should behave. Just give me the list. We want to attend the places and the churches where we are accepted and loved because we fall in behavioral norms. And we can do all of that out a crucified Messiah, and Paul says, "Watch out! You think you've got a real-life, practical wisdom that makes God happy with you, but the reality is, you are stepping around in dung. You're wallowing in a pigsty." That is just classic, climb your way to God, religion. But here's the thing about the cross of Jesus. After the cross, we can no longer think of ourselves as basically good, upwardly mobile people who just need to tweak a few things to get it in good with God. The cross does not allow us to look at ourselves that way as Stephanie prayed so clearly a moment ago. No, the hideousness of the cross of the Son of God is the signal that we are stuck in a feces of our own making. And our only hope is for Jesus, the very Son of God, to get in the middle of all of our muck and pull us out. We only get to God when God gets in us. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. We can only know, understand, and love the wonders of what God has for us if God is in us, if the Spirit of God is in us. You want to understand the Bible? You want to have the good life? You want to live in that countercultural way that makes people wonder what's going on with you? Well, you don't do it by becoming a theologian of great renown. Or in a list following a list of ethical behaviors. It's the spirit of God filling your mind with his wisdom and understanding and grace and love and then overflowing and going out of you. We only get to God when He gets in us. Now, that might frustrate you a little bit. Because maybe you feel like I've left you with no hope. You don't have a three-step formula for getting God to love you, or getting to Heaven, or whatever you want to call it. Oh, but that could only be true if you believe you're more serious about the art If God was not deadly serious about you and your life, then He would have given us a book of rules, told us to obey it, and said, good luck. How much more serious can you be than to take on a human body for the express purpose of being tortured and executed so that we, you, could have in you the very life of God Now that's serious. Oh, God is much more serious about your life than even you are about your life. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those that love Him. You remember that astute and learned professor from Yale Divinity School? Imagine, after his lecture, that you took him to lunch, just the two of you. You, with the Spirit of God in you, and your faith in Jesus Christ, and Him, well, just as He is. What would you say to Him? I imagine you'd be nervous, maybe timid. Perhaps your hands would be trembling a bit. Have you ever been in those situations? I've been in these conversations before where I was just kind of trembling a little bit, even though the temperature in the room was perfect, 71.5 degrees, but something inside of you was just making you a little jittery. Maybe you'd be like that. Maybe you'd just be pick up your glass of water and there would just be a slight tremble. Maybe you could interact with some of his lecture material, but it's more likely that your speech and your conversation would be simple, plain, without complicated words or quotations from famous thinkers. And if all you could manage to say to the esteemed professor, was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for us, and that includes you. And if you stood on that, and you didn't waver, and you understood what you were saying, well, you'd be in very good company indeed. Thanks be to God.